Well, again, thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, we're in some new territory for us as a church. It's exciting. Uh, it's exciting to accept the challenge and to, to have a team around me that's so, so good and so selfless of their time and energy. Um, uh, there's no doubt that this whole idea of the coronavirus um, has taken over our, our, our time, our attention. It's, it's, it's reshaped and directed our lives. Um, and, and for a lot of people uh, in, our, in our, especially our country, feel as though this is some really new territory. Um, but I'm reminded of something uh, when I was in undergrad, when I was in undergrad doing my college work, um, I took a class on C.S. Lewis. The whole, whole semester was just reading things that C.S. wrote. Uh, and one of the things I'm reminded of, and it's been going around the internet lately, it's been interesting, uh, was something he wrote uh, in, in the 40s, 72 years ago. Um, and they had just, his generation had just experienced uh, the atomic bomb at the end of World War II. And there was a lot of fear and trepidation uh, about living in the atomic age. Uh, and, and, and they lived with this constant fear. We just saw what could happen. I wonder if it's going to come near me. Uh, and, and then in my generation, we lived with the nuclear fear. Uh, the, the, between the United States and Russia, this whole thing called the Cold War, and, and we knew that either one of those world powers could, could push the button, and life as we knew it would change forever. And in this generation, they're dealing with the thing called the coronavirus. And it's interesting, these ones who were born after what we call 9-11, this is the first global threat that they've really understood and walked through. And now, while the mechanism of danger and fear is different, for C.S. Lewis and his generation, it was the atomic age. For me, it was the, the nuclear age. For, for this one, it's this pandemic. The mechanism is different, but the results that the mechanism produces is, is nothing new for any generation. It, we, we feel as though we're on some, some, some strange ground, some, some never-before-walked territory. Well, it's the same territory that every generation walks, because we all live with the potential of the what if. Well, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if... And in our culture right now, everybody's feeling like, well, what if I'm near someone who has? What if I'm exposed? What if my family's? What if? What if? What if? I just want to bring a little bit of perspective from an old guy that says this, this threat, the mechanism of the threat is different and feels unique. But the threat itself of what if and fear is not at all. It's every generation deals with it and feels it. Here's the thing. Had it not been the coronavirus, there's still threat. I mean, we, how long has humanity lived with the threat of cancer? How long has humanity lived with the threat of, of, of some, some terrible early demise? The threat's always with us. The, the thing that we've got to understand and we've got to know, and this is unique to those who have a relationship with Christ, is that none of those threats come as a surprise to God, and because they're not a surprise to Him, He's already been there, He's already been through it, and He's prepared for it. And so we go into this we should have a different perspective. The, the danger is letting the threat rob our life. You know, when we, when we go to bed and we lose sleep because of the what if, when we wake up in the morning early because of the what if, when our days are consumed because what if, what if, what if, we stop living life. 
And for those in relation with Christ, we ought to be able to still live life and still enjoy it uh, and still engage in it. And so my encouragement is, is, is to not let life be robbed from you because of the what ifs. It's, it, this is not unique to any generation. Those who are in relationship with Jesus ought to be able to handle this a little bit better. Uh, and we ought to still be the ones enjoying life the most, not being negligent, but enjoying it the most still. So we're in this series that I've called The Wrong Jesus. Not that there's anything wrong with Jesus, it's just sometimes our understanding about Jesus gets a little skewed and, and maybe we don't understand really who Jesus is from Scripture. And, and when that happens, we end up following a wrong perspective, a wrong understanding of Jesus. And when we follow in the wrong way, a wrong perspective of, of someone that we've created and how we think God's supposed to act, we end up being disappointed by Him. I, I, I want to suggest this, that the real Jesus has never disappointed anybody. Uh, and so as we look at the wrong Jesus, our perspective about what we got wrong, I want to I want to then readjust our perspective to the real one. Last week I talked about the idea that Jesus cares about us. Now that's good and fine as long as He also cares for us. Because here's the thing, you can care about me, but if you don't also then care for me, your care about me doesn't mean anything. Like your care about people has to have feet to it to walk into their lives and care for them. And so the fact that Jesus, we say Jesus cares about us doesn't mean anything unless He also cares for us. And, and I'm here to tell you, He does. He does. In, in the, the Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And they kind of tell Jesus' story uh, and His life. And, and they're each unique. Four different uh, guys re- recorded their perspective, their understanding, their experience uh, of Jesus. And they're very, very unique. Mark was the first one written. And Mark just starts like, a, like you're reading a news feed on your phone. It just jumps into the action. Um, Matthew... And Luke kind of draw on Mark as their reference point for how they're going to uh, understand and, 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 and present their perspective of Christ. And so Matthew starts with a genealogy going way back uh, through generations. And then Luke starts with the genealogy with the birth of, of Jesus through, through the Virgin Mary. John has the genealogy of Jesus, but his genealogy goes all the way back to the beginning. And in John 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So he goes all the way back. But they're all unique. They're all written for different purposes with different audiences in mind from different perspectives of these four guys, Matthew, Mark, and John. But they have one thing as far as the life of Jesus as the miracles in common. There's one miracle that all four of them recorded. There's only one. Out of everything Jesus, there's only one. And it's found in Matthew 14 and Mark 6 and John, or Luke 9 and John 6. And it's the feeding of the 5,000. For some reason, this was such an important miracle that all four of them record it. Now, they record different details about it, so there's a little bit of, like, this one gives you this insight, this, that insight. But there's something so unique and purposeful about this miracle that Jesus says, I'm going to show you who I really am. Don't get the wrong impression of me. Don't misunderstand me. Don't follow the wrong version that you have of me. I want to give you the real one. And it's found for us uh, in those four Gospels. And so I want to share with you from, from, from the perspective of John In chapter 6, this is what the Bible says about this miracle from John's perspective. Sometime after this, Jesus had crossed to the far shore 
of the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. And Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and, and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him because he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, how the people sit down? There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Now, that means they're, if they're mayor and they got kids, you're talking 10 plus thousand people. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all uh, had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, nothing, let nothing be wasted. So the disciples gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces, with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. The interesting thing, I want to unpack this, 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 this miracle and the account of it here uh, because it tells us so much about who Jesus is and the real Jesus. The, the first thing I notice in this is that it says sometime after this, he had been working with all these people, talking to all these people, multitudes of people. He crossed over to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. Why, why does it say to the far shore? Why did Jesus go to the far shore? But in Luke chapter 9, Luke adds another little piece of this. And he says, he went to a deserted place to be alone. And the crowds followed him. Why, why go to the far shore to a deserted place? Well, let me suggest you this. And this is, this is just the real Jesus we're talking about. Have you ever needed a break from people, but people didn't want to break from you? Have you, ever, have you ever been around people so much you just want to you just want to get away from them? The interesting to me, the thing to me in this is, is that people didn't want Jesus, they wanted something from Jesus. And, and, and if you've ever had those, I mean I have, where, where you know people don't really want you, they want something from you. If you're a young mom, you understand that more than anybody else. Uh, but 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 see. We, we have those times when you're like, I, I'm done. I've had enough. I don't, I don't want to be around people anymore. I don't want to. Like all you do, you just take and take and take. I don't have anything else to give. And I, I know you've felt that way. I've felt that way. Especially you've been sequestered in homes with each other. The thing I love about Jesus is that he's not like us. He's not like me anyway. Uh, and he, care, uh, he cares about these people even though they were an imposition to him. You know, as, as I've been, I walk a lot and I pray a lot while I'm walking. I started thinking, um, I wonder how God feels right now. I mean, last, last Sunday, President Trump called for a national day of prayer. Like even, even Donald Trump's, you know, drawn close, you know, drawn, talking to God. In times like this, everybody wants to talk to God. And I just wonder what God's, what God's feeling about that is. And if he's like, okay, yeah, well, now you want to talk to me. Sure, i got to do this to make you slow down and talk to me. All right, then. You know, I just, I just wonder what his perspective is. And then I start looking at the real Jesus, and his perspective was, even though I know that you don't really want me, you want something from me, uh, you're not really an imposition to me. I'll make time. I'll listen. 
And what's more, I've got a plan to help. That's what I love about Jesus. The Bible says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. These, uh, Matthew 9 says, in the same, uh, this, talking about the same miracle, that he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them and he healed them. When Jesus sees the crowds, he sees beyond the crowd, he sees to the inner person behind the crowd. And I know right now, as there are so many people, even globally, that are saying, God, would you please? He's not overwhelmed by it. And he sees behind the crowds that are clamoring for something to the person. He's got a plan. In verse 2 of this passage, it says, A great crowd of people followed him because why? Because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. The Greek word, verb there for followed him means they continually followed him. Like he couldn't get, sometimes he wanted to get away, he couldn't. They continually hammered after him because they continually saw the signs that he continually did. And in this case, healed the sick. Now that begs the question, well if he healed those sick, what about Everyone who was sick. He didn't heal everybody. But he healed them. And the fact is that Jesus left many still sick. But he healed many of them. But not all of them. I wish I had a direct line to God's sovereignty to know the difference and why and when and all of that. I don't. But I know that Jesus still does heal the sick. See, I was thinking about that this week and Again, with, with, with the proliferation of the you know, everybody, the sickness and how, how, how widespread it is, I thought, well, Jesus, you've healed people in the past, but I know you don't heal everybody, but this is what I thought. I thought, you know, we talk a lot about those he doesn't heal. Let's start talking about more, uh, more about the ones he does. Now, that deserves a little bit more press, I think, because he still does. And he's got a plan. Verse 5 says this. Uh, verse five, what does verse 5 say? In my Bible here. Verse 5 says this. It says, When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Philip, where are we going to buy enough bread to feed all these people? That was the question. Where are we going to buy enough bread to feed all these people? Now, the reason why he asked Philip, I, I don't know if any other time he asked Philip anything. And he asked Philip this question, where are we going to buy enough? The reason why I asked Philip, get this, is because Philip was from the area. Like he was a local. Like he said, Philip, you're, you're a local boy. Where are we going to get the bread to feed all these people? Here's what I know, and I put it on the screen. If you're near the need, come up with a solution. That, that's just, if you're near the need, come up with a solution. Here, here's what I know. In, in time, well, like when this whole thing broke out and everybody started freaking out, but what was the one thing that flew off the shelves before anything else? Toilet paper. Like, it just, it just, it just gone. Which amazes me, because toilet paper has nothing to do with the coronavirus. And, 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 and people just start hoarding stuff. I was in Target the other day, and there's nothing on the shelves in Target. It doesn't matter where you go, there's just an absence of resources. And, and I, I want to I suggest this, man. Look here. 
if, if you're hoarding stuff, give it away. I guarantee you, you know of people that are your neighbors. You know of people who are in need. You know of people that are worse off right now than you are. The lesson of Scripture is if you're near the need, provide the solution. That's why Jesus asked Philip where we're going to get the food because he was, he was local. We've been, there are people in our church who have been so gracious to bring us supplies and resources. We've been able to take that to different homes around here and, and just leave it on the porches for people to pick up and people who shouldn't be out right now. It's been really neat to see our church in action that way. But the hard truth is, and, and not everybody knows this, and, 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 and most people aren't real comfortable with this, but in Mark 6 of this same account, Mark tells us that, that these people had been listening to Jesus all day. All day. Like all day they were listening to Him. And Jesus took care of those who were with Him. Now, understand, He didn't feed everybody who was hungry in the area. He fed those that were with Him. He fed those that had spent the time listening to Him. Here's what I want to say. And this is where some people are going to get uncomfortable with it, but this is, this is just the facts here. The church is, is not intended to meet the needs of everybody around it. It's certainly to care for the needs of it, of those in it. But not just everybody around it. There's no way it can. The first priority of the church is to take care of the one another's in it. And we're given a lot of one another commands. And then to address those outside of it. And that's why it's so important to be a part of a church. Now, the good news of Jesus is meant for everybody outside of this place. But our first responsibility is to take care of those in this. And so that's why it's so important to be a part of a local church and to be a part of a local small group. So the question is this, who are you doing life with on a regular basis? Who are you doing church with? That here's the thing, if you're not doing life and doing church with other people, with God's people, then you're limiting yourself to the leftovers of community. Jesus will take care of those who are with him. He promises to. In verse 6, he goes on this story. He, so he asked, he, he didn't ask where we're going to get, uh, you know, all this food to feed these people as just a random question. He asked it only to test him. For Jesus had in mind already what he was going to do. Like he already knew what he was going to do. Jesus knew the miracle he was about to perform. Matter of fact, this is the only place in Scripture where Jesus asked the advice of somebody else. And he didn't ask the advice because he didn't know what he was going to do. He asked the advice because he wanted to draw him into the conversation to see the solution, be part of the solution. We learned last week. I talked about this, that every time Jesus teaches, every time God teaches, every time we read something in the Bible, there's going to come one of two things, either a time of testing or a time of tempting. Here's why. After we learn something from God, after he talks to us, there's going to either come a time of testing or tempting. They're going to be, the testing will be in order to employ us, to make sure we believe and we understand what we were just taught. The time of tempting, on the other hand, is meant to destroy us, to introduce fear and doubt, 
So which one was it? Jesus had just got done teaching the multitudes, and then he's got this chance with the 12 around him, and he asks this question, is this a time for testing or tempting for his disciples? Well, I mean, it's testing because he says, you already had a mind because he's going to test him. So he kind of tells us. But here's the thing. Jesus, his goal wasn't just to feed the multitudes. His goal was also to teach his disciples who he really is. And that's the point of this whole path. Like, let's understand who he really is. Now, here's the thing. Philip had already seen Jesus do miracles. He had already seen Jesus move. And he should have no question about the resources at Jesus' disposal. But here's what I know, and see if this isn't true for you. When we don't know what's going on, we doubt Jesus has a plan in place. See if that's not true. When we don't know what's going on, we kind of doubt if God's really in control, if He really has a plan that's already in place. If we can keep in mind that just because we don't know what's going on, Jesus still has a plan in place, we can be able to be at peace. But, but this is what's happening right now. Like there's all kinds of questions. What's going on? What's the next step? Where's this going from here? I mean, I got one son going to school in South Dakota. I got another son going to school in Colorado. They're both playing football. Spring ball is supposed to kick back up. Like the, our question ongoing is, well, what's the next step? Are they shutting school down for sure? The people in Rapid City where, where, where my middle son Caleb is, they came out, the, the, the city government came out and said, we're not going to shut businesses down. We want businesses to stay open. Adults ought to be wise enough to know if they want to go in them or not, but we're going to leave it up to people. It's an interesting perspective. Maybe adults can make their own decisions. I don't know. But, but the point is, there's all these questions. What's going to happen? And when we don't know what's going to happen, we start questioning if Jesus really does have a plan in place and if we're going to make us aware of it. And so we ask this question. We're going to get all this food. He knew what he was going to do. But watch the response. This amazes me. Philip answered, Will it would take more than half a year's wage to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite? Well, thank you, Captain Obvious. That's not what I asked. Jesus didn't ask, how much money is this going to take? He says, how are we going to solve this problem? See, Philip answered a question that wasn't asked. And I wonder how many times we do that with God. I wonder how many times we answer a question that isn't asked. We started, See, the problem's twofold here. The first problem is we don't have the resources we need to match the need at hand. Have you ever been in that situation where where you don't have the resources equal to the need? And you think, God, I, like I'm looking at what's in front of me, and I can't, I don't have, I don't know. You just don't have the resources necessary to meet the need. You ever been there? That's one problem. The other problem is this, that even if you had the money, there's no opportunity to get what you need. Like, like if you ever had those moments where you just think, if I just get my, I know I can handle, if I just get my hands on it, I know I can handle it. See, what Philip was saying was true. It was true. It could take half a year's wages. There was nothing wrong with what Philip said. The problem is he stopped with the facts. What he said was true. Factually, that you're right, Philip. But the problem is you stopped with the facts. See, we, we talked about this a lot. Now, I want you to understand this. That, let me put it on the screen. That the way the supernatural is revealed is to move against the natural. 
Like the supernatural never exposes itself until someone moves against the natural, moves against the facts. Philip said, here's the facts. This is the natural. And the problem is he never moved against the facts so the supernatural could be revealed. He stopped at the facts. And, and maybe that's part of our problem. We stop at the facts. You know, and what we're going through today, this, this virus is huge. It's sweeping the world. Old elderly are at risk. It, there's no known antidote, virus, medicine. Those, those are all facts and it's all true. But when people stop with the facts, Philip should have said, I don't know, Jesus, we're going to get this food. It's not my problem, it's yours. That's what he should have said. He should have said, Jesus, this is not my problem. You led us here. We're your responsibility. That's what he should have said. He should have said, Jesus, I don't know. You asked me a question. That's not my problem to solve. He should have said, I know what you've done in the past. I've seen you do all kinds of stuff. You can still do all this stuff. Don't ask me where we're going to get bread for all these people. That's your problem. He should have said, I know that God fed millions of people through Moses. You're greater than Moses, so we're just going to step back. We are at the mercy of your mercy and grace, and we just want to step back and let you do what you're going to do. We want to see you work, so go ahead, Jesus. That's what he should have said. See, Philip's knowledge of the facts was accurate, but it was useless in solving the problem. So here's the thing. For all you fact people, you might be very right in saying, look, Jesus, these are the facts. But when you stop there with no expectation of the supernatural, you'll never receive that. So verse 8 and 9, I, I love this story. So Andrew, another of his disciples, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. That's the facts. And then he asked the question, but how far is that going to go? See, Andrew starts to get there and then he backs off. Andrew again introduced someone to Jesus. Andrew's always introducing pe uh, people to Jesus. The first one was his brother. He goes, hey, brother, come here. God, I want you to introduce you to Jesus. And now this, there's this little boy. Now, it, there's no indication that Andrew knew this kid's name, knew who he was. He just found this little boy. It's kind of a creeper. But he, he saw this little boy with a little lunchbox. And he says, hey, I got something. Jesus. It's not much, but I got something. And he started with eyes of faith. But all he saw was the need. See, when the Bible says here it was barley loaves, barley was not really, it, it wasn't good for, it was the, it was bread that poor people ate. I mean, it just wasn't, it was more suited for animals and donkeys and oxen than it was for people. And so what we know just by the fact that the scripture says it was barley loaves, that this was a poor kid from a poor family, man, they had nothing. And two small fish. These were little fish, salted like sardines. And so he's got some oat for a horse and two sardines. And, and so the fact was, I have this. It's not much. How far is this going to go? That was the fact. Did you know this? Uh, that Jesus really doesn't need much to make it work? That like God doesn't need much? Matter of fact, God doesn't need nothing. But here's how God works. And this is the real, this is how the real Jesus works. And, and this might make you a little uncomfortable because we just want to sit back and let Jesus like do something for us. Like, go ahead, Jesus. But, but this is how God often works. God often deliberately withholds his work until he has our participation. He often withholds his work until he has our participation. He didn't ask 
advice because he didn't know what to do. He knew what he was going to do. He was inviting participation. Again, move against the natural, then the supernatural is revealed. Move against the facts. I don't have much. I got a couple bar loaves and, and two fish I took from some little kid. I don't have much, but here go. Do something with it. Move against the facts. See, small things aren't worthless things. It just depends on whose hands they're in. And I want to let you know this, that God wants to tell you that what, what you need is what you have. He's already put it in your hands. Now, your problem is you might be looking and say, I don't have much. I doubt that's ever going to be. He's given you what you need in your hands. And He's asked you to say, okay, God, this is what I have. This is the need before me. This is what I have. In faith, now it's your problem. I'm going to do my part. Here it is. Move against the facts. I trust it's going to be enough. Now let you do your thing. Here's what I want to encourage you. Quit making a list of what you don't have. Quit making a list of what you don't have. This is where so many people just fall short. And why we rarely see God kind of step in and do His thing. Because we approach God from this mentality of scarcity and we bring the list of what we don't have and we stop at the facts. See, the real Jesus has put what you need within your grasp. Grab hold of it. Bring it. Say, all right, Jesus, I'm excited to see what you're going to do. See, it's not about what you have in your hand. It's about what you do with what's in your hand. This is true in so many levels. It's true about marriage. Even if you are married, it's less about who you have and more about how you handle who you have. See, the reason, one of the reasons why so many marriages fall apart is because they look at who they have and think, I want something different. I want different ingredients in my marriage. I got to get somebody to do it. It's not about who you have, it's about how you handle what you have. Now, uh, truth be told, you can make a better tasting cake with better ingredients. So choose your ingredients wisely when you get married. But all I'm saying is, like, it depends more about what you have in your hand and how you handle what you have in your hand. Have you ever, did you ever hear a 14 or 15 year old kid talk about how stressed they are? How worried they are and stressed? They're just so busy. Let me tell you this. I love you, but let me tell you this. Unless you're a 15-year-old uh, un, un, unmarried mom, you don't know what stress is yet. <laughs> you, you, you talk about stress and busy, you go talk to a, the mother of a, of a young infant. They'll tell you what stress and busy is. See, the issue isn't, I have this stress on me because of what we're in. I have this worry. The issue isn't what you have on you. It matters what you do with it. God's got a plan. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. God's provision usually follows your vision. That's just not a catchy little thing, which, by the way, I'm giving you some catchy stuff today. You ought to write this stuff down. God's provision usually follows your vision. It's called faith. See, do you see the little or do you see the much? Which Jesus are you following? Do you see the limit or do you see the excess? Which Jesus are you following? Do you see what you've let go of out of your hands or do you see what God can multiply in His hand? See, His provision will follow your vision. What do you see? I mean, this is exactly what the Bible says. The Bible says faith is the substance of what you hope for. It's the evidence of what's unseen. 
See, the fact is that God wants us to act with and act on the little that we have before he grants the excess. See, here's what I know. When all we see is the little we have, we will never see him as enough. And that's the point of this whole thing. We've got to see him as enough, not the little that we have. And so verse 10 says this. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down about 5,000 men. Again, with the, the, the wives there and the kids, we're talking 10,000, 15,000 people. There's a bunch of people. Here's what else. He said, make them sit down. Here's what we got to understand, that we cannot eat our feel on the run. You can't eat your feel on the run. And so sometimes God has to make you slow down in order to feed you. Sometimes God has to make us slow down in order to meet our need. The Gospel of Mark has this little, this little addition to this account. It says he, makes them, he made them sit down in green grass. Why does Mark add the idea, uh, the, the detail that the grass was green? He said make them sit down in green grass. Why? Because it's the same word used back in Psalm 23, verse 2. He'll make me lie down in green pastures. He's a shepherd to make you lie down. The, the interesting thing in this, as I look at that, I put those two together, he'll make me lie down. He told us, make them sit down. See, it's not an invitation, and it's not a suggestion. Sometimes he has to make us sit down and slow down so he can feed us and fill us. There's no doubt, I guarantee you, that the majority of people two weeks ago would have been begging for a day off of work. You could have said, if I could just have one day when I can sit around the house in my sweats and watch movies all day, just give me one day. Just give me one day when I don't have to go to the office, when I don't got to teach those kids at school, when I don't have to listen to my boss, when I have to get up. And, just give me one day. If I have one day just to slow down, we would have loved this opportunity. Well, guess what? You got it. You got it. And sometimes God says, okay, here's the deal. I told you. When I gave the list of the Big Ten to have a Sabbath, and you've been running yourself in the ground. So unfortunately, I mean, just think about it for a minute. I'm not saying that God did. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God did the coronavirus. I'm just saying he's made us slow down. The interesting thing to me is this, that in the Old Testament, there was an Old Testament law that every seventh year, that the land had to rest, that they had to, they had to stop what they're doing so their land could rest. And there's no indication, there's no evidence at all that they obeyed that law for 490 years. There's no evidence. Maybe they did, I don't know, but there's no evidence they did until they're taken into captivity as a nation. How long were they in captivity? 70 years. Why were they in captivity for 70 years? Because guess what happened? One year for every seven, the land rested. Finally, the command was obeyed. I'm just saying. God commands rest. And we will rest one way or the other. Here's what I know. Some of, some of us have been so wired, for, so wired for activity, so wired to go, 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 do, do, do. We overload our lives and our schedules and we squeeze out room for God. There's no room for Him. There's no room for rest and and. and if you can't slow down and rest without guilt, you can't obey God with joy. That's all I'm saying. And so while you have time to rest, rest. 
Don't just watch Netflix and chill. Just rest. And focus on Him. He really does care enough about you to make you rest. So choose to do it obediently before you have to do it against your will. Now, one of the things I love about Jesus is that He always acts with surplus in mind. He told him, gather what's left. Because he knew that there was going to be leftovers. It was like going to grandma's house for, for holiday. You know you're going to walk home with leftovers. He knew there were going to be leftovers. Here's what I know. The wrong Jesus acts from a position of scarcity. The real Jesus acts from a position of abundance. What do you expect from him? And which Jesus are you following? See, the devil speaks to us and he says things like this. Be afraid. It won't work. you got something to worry about. It's going to be too hard. It's bigger than you. That's The devil talks to us all the time. And how much of that voice have we heard over the past week? This is big. It's huge. There's no answer. There's no hope. Be careful. And you should be careful. I'm not saying, uh, you know, neglect all that stuff. I'm saying this voice rings over and over and over. And over. What if it gets you? What if it gets those you love? Jesus speaks and he says, be still. I'm with you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I won't leave you alone. I'm bigger than this, Jesus says. Be still. And he always acts in a way that assumes provision and excess. That's his perspective. The Bible says they were filled. They were stuffed. They have no room for more. They're like, you know, you got to unbutton the britches at the ta- dinner table because you've eaten so much. That's what it says. It says they had 12 baskets full of food. Why 12? Because how many disciples were with them? 12. Twelve guys that doubted him. There was so much left over. They each got, you get a basket of food, and you get a basket of food, and you get a basket of food. They get these parting gifts from God to show and to prove his unmerited blessing and favor. See, the wrong Jesus will keep you hungry and unsatisfied. The real Jesus always ends with abundance and provision. The good news is this as I read this. That even when I doubt, if I act in obedience, God responds with abundance. Just how He does. That's the real Jesus. That I don't have to have perfect faith. There's a lot that I still doubt. And i got to preach every Sunday. There's a lot that I still doubt. But I try to act in obedient faith even in the midst of doubt. Because that is when God releases abundance. See, the wrong Jesus will reward you based on religion if you're good enough if you've behaved enough if you don't do the bad things and you do do the good things if you're religion the real Jesus doesn't act that way the real Jesus rewards not based on perfect faith but rather based on obedient faith in the midst of doubt and even failure see this entire come up here Rick this entire miracle this entire and this is why I think this is why this is why I think it is foreshad- like it, it's in all four gospels. It's so important, and this is why, because it is a foreshadowing of Jesus Himself and Him giving Himself for us. Jesus will say in a little bit after this miracle, "I'm the bread of life. I came down from the Father. The Father's given me for you." I'm the bread of life. This was a foreshadowing of who Jesus is and what Jesus will do. 
God has proven once and for all, not just that he cares about us, but that he cares for us. How? Not just in miracles that Jesus did, because he proves it once and for all, because he didn't spare his own son. And if he loves us enough and cares about us and cares for us enough not to spare his own son, why would he spare anything else? If he loves us enough not to spare his own son, why would he spare anything else? The answer is he won't. So the question is, how much more will he give to us? This week, I want you to rest in the knowledge that God cares about you and that he cares for you. That he has abundance in store for those who move even in the face of doubt and failure. Who endeavor to move in obedience. And to continue obeying him and follow him even in the midst of your doubt this week. Don't let that doubt take over. Don't let that fear take over. He's got a plan. And he's going to work it. And it will work together. For good. Those who love Him are called according to His purpose. That's a promise. We know that. I want you to pray with me.